Welcome to Navigating Lyme Disease for patients and doctors. I'm here with Dr. Daniel Cameron. Thank you uh, again for being here, Dr. Cameron. I sure appreciate it. I'm certainly happy to be with you again. Thank you. In the last episode, we spent a fair amount of time talking about children with Lyme disease, and this is going to be part two where we get into it a little bit more. And what I like to do is start this out with an overview of a case study. And so we are on chapter six of the book, An Expert's Guide on Navigating Lyme Disease. And we are on topic three, which is about a teen who was very good in martial arts and ended up being in a wheelchair. A healthy 18-year-old female, skilled at Taekwondo, uh, all of a sudden has a bullseye rash, followed by Bell's palsy. And over four years, she became increasingly disabled, suffering seizures, and eventually required a wheelchair. Talk a little bit about how this got solved and what the process was for this 18-year-old girl. Well, the the uh, case study that was published was talking about an 18-year-old girl. But as often happens when you look back over time, that bullseye rash and Bell's palsy are both things that are commonly seen in Lyme. It's just that you'd be surprised how often they may sound obvious when you're treating somebody who's 18, but there are plenty of people with bullseye rashes or flat red rashes who, who don't get treated. Sometimes even the Bell's palsy, which gets your attention, is is blamed on a virus, and they treat with steroids, treat with a uh, antiviral medicine. So it's pretty common I see in a practice where someone's been sick for years without uh, an actual uh, an answer. But over the years, um, she became um, quite disabled, uh, had been a Taekwondo uh, uh, aficionado and was excellent at that, but she was became disabled, suffered seizures, and eventually a wheelchair. And so the doctors, uh, you know, went over the symptoms that she experienced. So I wanted to uh, be able to lay out this is where she is at 18 years of age. Uh, the symptoms have cognitive impairments. That's what we were talking about. Examples of cognitive problems like attention issues, memory problems, processing executive function problems. So I would imagine that really affected also her ability to function in school. Uh, they have tactile hypersensitivity. That's what I said, the sensory system is turned up to high. Right. Sun sensitivity. Then there's something called an autonomic nervous system where it controls movement. So that's why they said orthostatic hypotension. There's weight loss, fatigue couldn't sleep very well, woke up, not rested, pelvic pain, difficulty urination. You know, as you can see, this list gets bigger and bigger, but it's so often that a, a child has a broad range of issues. They went out and said you had headaches, uh, peripheral neuropathy, muscle atrophy, cervical pain, hair loss, costochondritis, which is pain across the chest, and subluxation of the multiple joints. So some of the joints weren't moving properly, and generalized pain. So at that particular point, uh, there was a broad range of issues that uh, this uh, teen presented with, and it was no wonder that she was that sick. And she got sick enough to end up in a wheelchair by the time she got evaluated. 
And one of the things that really surprised me was that clinicians first diagnosed her with uh, fibromyalgia. And how do we help physicians to get from this broad range of symptoms to Lyme disease? How do we help them to do that? Well, there's um, often what I call door number one, which is fibromyalgia. Door number two is chronic fatigue, or what they call CFSME. And door number three is Lyme. And so the symptoms are so often the same for all three. You know, maybe if they have more pains, they'll call it fibromyalgia. And if they have fatigue, it'll be uh, the chronic fatigue type things. But, you know, the list of the symptoms are pretty much the same. So a lot of doctors will pick one of them. Now, sometimes if, if treating fibromyalgia works, that's fine. But often you'll find over time that door number one, fibromyalgia, door number two doesn't work, and they finally get back to back to Lyme disease. Well, my concern is that uh, even if the doctor elects to say, well, that's fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue, they don't notice sometimes that, well, that patient's sick. Or what I would prefer is that they should open up the Lyme disease door right up at the beginning and make sure they don't overlook a persistent infection and overlook an opportunity to get better. This patient at some point had the the uh, warning signs of a rash and uh, seizure, but sometimes uh, even those simple things get overlooked. So um, in this case, this girl in hindsight uh, get, kept getting other diagnoses. And of course, that takes a lot of time away. The doctor's uh, are doing tests, you know, since it was pseudo-seizures, they probably had a neurologist involved, did an EEG, which was normal. Uh, and so I'd say it, it's patients that, like this, uh, this girl who seems to get lost in a system and, uh, and going after diagnosis that probably ate up time. Uh, sure, she probably got something once in a while, but to be that sick four years later is a uh, um, something so frustrating to that parent and uh, and frustrating to me because as a doctor, I think they they should have looked at it a little sooner, like much sooner than just four years later. Right, right. And, you know, the thing that, that fascinates me is that as awful as this must have been for those four years, the fact is that she's married, physically active, leading a productive life, as you say in the book. I, I'm just so shocked at how broad from being in a wheelchair to being physically active this can be with a patient. Yeah, I thought this authors um, um, did a good job of explaining all the sidebars, all the misdirections. They even had a few more diagnoses that were entertained by different doctors. Uh, Erlos Danlos, which is a where they have laxity of the uh, of the joints, uh, anxiety as a as a label. A lot of patients get uh, who end up eventually having Lyme disease. Uh, there's a also um, seizures caused by inter increased intracranial pressure. Uh, that's been uh, talked about uh, at Porphyria. So there's a variety of diagnoses that were considered, uh, but when they finally decided to um, diagnose and treat her, it was a, you know, it's a great, you know, to take somebody who's that sick with that many different diagnoses to, um, 
be able to get her back to being married and having a productive life. So I'm glad the uh, that she got better, but I'm also glad that Dr. Bransfield and Friedman shared that uh, case study. Really powerful. Let's move to topic 11 in chapter six, because it's a perfect follow-on. You know, as we've talked a, a number of times about how difficult this is for kids, but also how difficult it is for parents. Let's talk about the study that was done with 23 parents with Lyme disease positive children. There were all kinds of things that parents said. My youngest child, who was 10 at the time, had two bullseye rashes on her uh, on her body. It can't be Lyme. There's no Lyme in, in British Columbia, is what the doctor said. What What do you say to that parent in terms of how to help them or other parents going through the same situation? Well, that was um, one of the categories that where uh, these Lyme patients talked about lack of knowledge. And so sometimes it's the uh, doctor um, who um, isn't comfortable with the range of symptoms, but be surprised how many uh, parents uh, where they get lost in the system. Uh, this one happened to have two rashes, just like that rash in the first story we talked about. Mm-hmm. And there's also knowledge um, that's getting spread in Canada that they don't have Lyme. Even now, for years now, they have uh, ticks there, the right kind of ticks, the right kind of cases, the right kind of blood tests. And so uh, since this was a, uh, a Canadian study, it's, uh, it's easy to get caught up on, on knowledge that's kind of old, that's stale, and especially with Lyme, there's so much uh, research coming out. This book is trying to summarize so many things that have come, come to the forefront, and that it would be helpful if patients, their families, and uh, the clinicians to uh, bone up on something as uh, complicated as that. Talk just a little bit about your understanding of the prevalence of uh, Lyme disease in Canada. Well, I was at a conference uh, maybe 20 years ago where the debate was, uh, why is there so much Lyme in uh, New York uh, Michigan, uh, uh, Minnesota, but nothing in Canada. It was almost like there's an artificial border between it. it you know, probably in the United States, the most cases, uh, in fact, 90% of cases seem to be in the Northeast uh, and all the way to Minnesota, and some in California. So with so many cases, uh, Canada, why didn't they have any? So it took a lot of courageous researchers in Canada to look for ticks, and find all the stages of ticks. And they blame most of the spread on birds. You know, birds could fly hundreds of miles, a uh, thousand miles. And and so at, at one time, they started looking at birds that were crossing the border. And they could cross the border without going through a border guard. <laughs> and there were probably an average of two to three ticks. That means some birds had more ticks, some less, but an average of two some ticks. So they had decided there were like maybe 50 million uh, deer ticks that were making to Canada. Mm-hmm. And when they got to Canada, then of course, some of the Canadians said, well, well, they can't live in a Canadian winter. Uh, there's too severe, but they certainly lived through a Minnesota winter where I grew up in a Michigan winter. And uh, so over time, they found there's plenty of ticks that, that settle down. Uh, they make eggs, they make uh, 
eggs that go to um, nymphs and larvae and then adults. And so they're pretty established up there. And a lot of Canadians are frustrated, just, just like Americans, just like people in the Northeast, is, is why is there so much knowledge that I can read about it on the Internet, that I can read about it from PubMed to scientific uh papers that doctors listen to and how come um, I could read all this that, uh, that somehow the doctors in their busy practices uh, uh, aren't aware of uh, all of the knowledge that's coming out. So that's why uh, these kind of conversations to try to bring everybody up to speed in Northeast United States, across the country and Canada. Uh, yeah, and I imagine that one of the reasons a lot of physicians don't know this information is that they're they don't find Lyme in their specialty. Is that a fair statement? In other words, they're not running across articles about Lyme because of whatever their specialty is. That's what they tend to read about. Yeah, I find that um, that I have a habit of reading more Lyme than, than some of the other articles. Uh, but there's so many things that happen in Lyme that take me over to heart, like the, the dysautonomic issues, the blood pressure issues, the all the neurologic issues that um, that you get from pseudo seizures, seizures, uh, things that look like multiple sclerosis, and so the fact that I focus on Lyme means I, I have to sort of incorporate uh, a lot of other uh, type problems. Mm-hmm. But but the next issue when it c- comes to uh, doctors is that every doctor seeing Lyme patients, so even though they don't read on that topic that much is the Lyme patients show up in neurologist's office, rheumatologists, infectious disease office, pediatricians. And so even though, yes, there's people like me who read so much about Lyme and work with it, just every doctor um, is seeing them and, uh, or they're being asked, well, could this be bigger than my seizure? Could this be bigger than my ADHD, my anxiety? And, and so, these types of uh, articles remind doctors that they may not be a specialist in that area, but it's important to uh, look out for patients so they can uh, make sure that somebody's addressing their Lyme disease. And hopefully reading this book because it's important for them to know. One of the, the topics that comes up a little further down is the idea of unreliable tests. And one of the parents is quoted as saying, I think this was one of the worst times for me because I found myself hoping, actually praying that something would show up, that they would see something was wrong. So they had no choice to address it. It made me feel like a terrible mother who wishes for something to show up on a scan of their child. This is a really big issue in terms of testing, isn't it? Yeah, most of the diseases that this first child that presented with are not visible on on a scan or on a test. And so fibromyalgia, other than sore areas, there's not any formal tests. Chronic fatigue doesn't have formal tests. The uh, Ehlers Danlos, and so you know Lyme disease often doesn't have any perfect tests. It's just as a clinician, if you see so many issues, is that keep Lyme on the list. Don't take that off the list first. And so it's a Lyme has gotten to, gotten to be such a problem and so common and so treatable that you can't be sitting around always waiting for a test. And isn't part of the reason that tests are difficult 
to come up with for Lyme is because it presents itself in a variety of different ways? You know, part of it is we don't order it in the first place. Um, or if you only order the Lyme test, not the Western blot, which is a specialized test, uh, or the doctor may not order some of the co-infections, which are, which are other infections in a tick. Um, but if they even order it, then the CDC set the bar really high so that you have to have a certain number of bands on a Western blot, and each band represents a protein that's on a, a spirochete or in a spirochete. And so by requiring what they call five out of 10 IgG Western blot bands, or 2Ms, uh, we'll probably talk about that later, is that, that often people have a positive test uh, on a lot of markers, but not quite enough to make the CDC criteria. And so the doctors will spend a lot of time on looking and talking about the bands, how many bands, but they forget that you still have to use clinical judgment. So the patient might have only three markers. They'll say, yes, you don't meet the CDC criteria, but you're left hanging where the doctor um, takes Lyme off the list too quick. And then what we have is parents who are dismissed by their physician Parent says she was dismissed from countless medical appointments with doctors stating, just take some Tylenol and get on with your life. Or the lab work is normal. There's nothing else I can do. How do we help a parent to to negotiate that with a physician? Well, one of the reasons that this book is, um, I found was important and I wanted to work with it is that, you know, doctors and their patients, their families um, read about something, but this puts together um, topic after topic in in, in a really easy to uh, find um, areas. So even if uh, you as a patient uh, uh, see somebody with Lyme, you can quickly access the articles the, the, and read more depth on that particular topic so that you can bring the case to the physician. Also, a clinician can kind of safely uh, catch up on the literature because each page is a different topic, a different article, a different thing that's been published. And so it's really a a way to skim through, uh, see what's important to your patient that day or what's important to bring to the doctor's attention. And and I think that uh, this type of like methodical breaking it down uh, keeps you from getting lost in the internet. You got at least one place to uh, to uh, get the, a better handle on the on the science that we know about Lyme disease. And as we've talked about before, and it bears repeating, the beauty of the book is that every article is relatively short. I think what a few hundred words at the most. Well, a lot of them are down to 110 words. Um, so I I used a larger font, uh, which which meant that I had to be pretty brief, concise. And uh, uh, now if anybody wants to read past those 100 words, there's uh, typically a blog where it goes into it in much more detail. It's just that they'll get the first crack at it with the article, get the essence of it, to, to sort of force me as a writer to be more concise. You know, as a writer, as you know, a lot of times you could, you've got endless amount of uh, 
space to write and you just can quantificate on it. But to, this call was uh, clean, crisp, get the facts out, get the topic out. And uh, uh, so it's a, a great start for, uh, it's also a great start for somebody that's a, you know, father, mother, a, a daughter to uh, quickly get up to speed instead of just spending all their time on the internet. And the thing that I, I keep coming back to over these episodes is if you're a parent and your child is being diagnosed with many things and being shuffled around from one physician to another, to me, that's a red flag to say, oh, maybe I should be thinking about Lyme disease. Are we on the same page that way? Well, well that's a really good point because when you've only been sick for a week, there's a broad range of issues and sometimes it'll just go away, you know, two weeks, three weeks into it. But if you're finding that they're back to your office and, and all you come up with is um, chronic fatigue or you say, well, it must be a psychiatric problem and they're still sick, is that this kind of book, this kind of uh, discussion says, well, you know, before going too far, go back and maybe use clinical judgment. Uh, don't forget Lyme disease. Don't take it off the list so quick. And uh, and that type of process uh, is totally different than just continuing to roll over to another specialist. Say, oh, well, neurologist, uh, and then 